Well, typically, obviously, we would do the, the sermon now. We're going to do a, a bit of a different format. As many of you know, you can come on up, Chuck. Um, Chuck was away last week. Um, he went to a, a retreat in North Carolina with uh, Dr. Larry Crabb. It, it was on a retreat um, surrounding the idea of spiritual um, direction. And so we just wanted to have a, a conversation. Even as we conclude this prayer from the book of Jonah, um, it was actually quite apropos. I, I was supposed to do um, verse 10 as well last week, but since Chuck was away, I just went and cut that off, and it actually turned out to be a perfect transition for yes. our time today. So, yeah. It's interesting because J- uh, Jonah 2.10 is really the turning point in the book, and in and, and more than just a philosophical way, the, the Hebrew writers of the book actually use the 10th verse to indicate to the scribes we are transitioning, and there's a Part of Jonah 3, the first, if you compare the first three verses of Jonah 3 to the first three and four verses of Jonah 1, it's clearly the, 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 the attempt of the author to let us know, okay, we're, we're, st- we're going to have a second shot at this. <laughs> I mean, we're going to do this, we're going to try this again. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. But verse 10 is this experience of Jonah recognizing that there is something different, something different that has been produced in him. And, uh, and for me, uh, my involvement with this School of Spiritual Direction and Larry Crabb's ministry uh, got underway a few years ago without really knowing it because I was uh, getting some spiritual direction and some counsel from a friend. Uh, I talked to him every month by phone. And he had been involved and was himself a Christian counselor. And, uh, and we would just talk, and I was seeking out his direction in life. I was saying to him, uh, you know, I need somebody to help coach me along, you know, to give me some direction about what's going on in my life and what it is that God's trying to do and, and how do I um, kind of piece together what my next steps in the process of the Christian life are are really all about. So I found that that turning point in my life coincided in many ways with what Jonah has experienced. And um, so, like I said, the, 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 the essence of what you would learn in this school is really just how, as a community, we can be in each other's lives. I mean, the notion, the week itself is you'd feel like it was sort of a retreat week, but it was a more like a school. You go in the morning for a couple hours, you have afternoon things you do, you have evening things you do. Um, it's pretty much from 8 in the morning till 9 at night and with some breaks in between here and there, but you're tired by the end of the day and not because you've been running around because you're at this beautiful conference center and you've been doing a lot of internal thinking. You've been doing a lot of um, searching your heart and it's you're a smidge exhausted from that if you're like me, not you're an extrovert and you've done a lot of introversion and a lot of uh, reflection. Uh, by the time nighttime rolls around, you just want to go to bed. And so uh, the experience was really good because uh, the first part of it, you the first two thirds of the week is really uh, trying, you know, really allowing the spirit to do work in your own heart. And then figuring out, you know, the process of what it what it has taken to, for that work to come to the surface, and the the role that others and community play in in making that um, a reality. Yeah. So, what what would have been some of the big themes of the week as they process through that? Um, one, the there's 
there are a handful of them, but the running concurrently would be that, that the purpose of spiritual direction, and this term spiritual direction is not new, it's not the latest fad, it's actually a rebirth of something that was a part of the ancients, really, the, the monastic movement, others, the way they characterized what modern day people call discipleship. This is like the process of influencing another person, whether you call them a mentor or some other person in your life. The, in, in years past, in generations past, people referred to the person that was helping them discern what God was doing in their life as their spiritual direction. And one of the central themes of that process in any of our lives with anybody that serves in that capacity in our life is having conversations that matter, which means that ultimately the conversation is going to get to what your deepest longing is. And obviously, if we know from Scripture that the deepest longing of the soul is to be in communion with God, and the problem with most human beings is that we, and I would say all human beings, but some have been protected by grace from just falling into these patterns early in life, but a lot of us, what happens is, is we sort of learn how to cope without God. We get in patterns of doing and being that seem to say, this is how I'm going to keep my life safe. This is how I'm going to order. This is going to how I manage my life. And, and this is what it's going to look like. And we do that sometimes not even knowing that we are excluding God from the process. We are just learning how to control our own lives. And some of it's based on pain experiences. Some of it's based on the pain of neglect. Uh, but for a lot of us, the strong notions of the Christian life is that it's, it's supposed to be there to help us, that the reason we're a Christian is, in effect, to have Jesus help us have better lives right now. And that's not the purpose of the Christian life. The purpose of the Christian life is for us to be restored to fellowship and restored to identity as God's children. That's his priority. And so all of the promises in the scriptures about him being good to us and, and about his purposes being good and about his provision for our life are all true. But as human beings, and particularly as Western Americans, we've kind of defined good in this very comfortable, easy, uh, living on top of the world, no troubles kind of Christianity. And that isn't really how life works. And there are many people like Jonah and yours truly and others among us who've had experiences where you go, this, my life is a lot harder than, than I thought it was going to be. I, I thought by now that in the Christian life I was going to be a lot further ahead than I was. I thought for some reason or another that the suffering or the, the ongoing struggle with sin or any number of things was going to stop. And uh, I think that is a challenging thing for the church when you have to come to terms with that, uh, you know, we're not here to give simple answers for how to get your life manageable again. Um, the purpose of the Christian faith is to help us all in the midst of suffering and struggle to discover God in the ways that he is. Uh, called us to in this life. So there are these things. C.S. Lewis talked about it. Dr. Crabb talks about it a lot. It's the consolable and inconsolable longings. Theologians sometimes will refer to it as the things that the gospel has achieved for us that we do for now and the things that we can expect from the gospel's benefit as later or not yet. 
And, and so we're in this place where we have to ask, what have we been promised? And, and so are we promised things like that that is going to be the story of our life? Are we, are, are we promised like complete physical health in this lifetime? And so there's these battles that life is going to contain suffering and challenging and then trying to figure out how that fits into God's plan for what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, um, Lewis has this great quote. As, as an atheist, that was one of the things that drew him to Christianity was an inconsolable longing, which the evolutionary worldview didn't answer for him because he said, if I find in myself a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy, the best explanation, I would say, is that I was created for another world. And so it is a profound idea that these longings are pointers to something that is just over the horizon right there. Yeah, and, and for many of us, particularly if you were raised in affluence, um, it, it is fairly easy to become fixated on the things that we've been given in life as the source of life. Additionally, a lot of us, and I can just say the process that you go through in this direction week um, is, is one where you, they first sort of dig around in your soul. You're kind of the, your own guinea pig for learning how to really encourage a community of people because this isn't about me becoming an expert so that I can have people lined up to come and help me spiritually direct them, although I'd be thrilled if you... Either of us is kind of why we got into being pastors in the first place. We'd be thrilled to play any role in your life and assisting you in that way, so please feel free to ask. But the goal is to get a community of people that are asking each other these important questions that are driving us to, what is it that I'm really longing for? And I'll give you some for instances. I'll start with my own life. Because of my growing up, the situation, the circumstances of my life, I grew up craving attention. Now, there's, all bets are off in terms of what is really stirring that. It could have been a number of things. Um, I was raised in a big family, and my dad had to work all the time, so I didn't have a really close relationship with him. I was an only boy, so I had five sisters, and so I spent a lot of time in my own head. And I was a particularly social kid, and so what ended up happening was is that I would just act out a lot. And it was, uh, it was a, a lot of attention-getting action. Well, as you get older, you realize certain things uh, get you negative attention. You don't want them. So you start developing mature attention-getting methods like success and achievement. And, and if you're like I was, you come to Christ in an environment where it's a big church and the people who have the most honor are the people up front, it doesn't take, you know, real skill to put two and two together and realize... Um, that's what I want if that's going to give me affirmation. If that will get me attention, that's where I'm going to be. So at a really early Christian experience, I believed God had called me to be an evangelist, like all these super-duper evangelists that paraded across the stages of the churches where I was, because in my mind I wanted to believe it was for Jesus, and in reality it was probably for Chuck. And so... Uh, um, um, and it's sad, but true, is that you kind of sort of have in your head that that is the means of sensing and feeling God's love in your life in a meaningful way. That you, what I would effectively be saying is, I can't know joy unless I'm important to other people. And that is a, a disaster waiting to happen. And eight years ago, it came to a head for me. 
when all of my efforts to succeed came crashing down and God allowed me to see that what had been driving me for four decades of my life is this inner compulsion, this need for him that you wouldn't have noticed, I wouldn't think, unless you were real close to me. You probably would have sensed, yeah, you know, because I was saying all the right things. I clearly had been ordained by the Presbyterians. I was planting churches. I was a youth minister. Kids were coming to know Christ. So unless you got close enough to me to realize that something was just a bit off. Dude is doing this, and sometimes it feels like um, what's pushing him is not a healthy thing. And, and so the week for some is the first time they've come to terms with this. The spiritual direction week is the first time. So for me, I've been plowing through this turf for several years. And so it was very confirming. It gave me some language that I needed. And, and it really set me on a course of wanting not to turn into like super therapist Chuck, because that's not my gift. Um, that's Jana's gift. You want to talk to somebody, she'll help you. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, she's the one that's been trained as a psychologist and a therapist. I'm just the one who wants to uh, come alongside people. And when there's something in our lives that we've just used to cope, and some of it might seem like okay things. Uh, Lewis Keller, because he's echoing Lewis all the time, Always. is saying things like, they call them second things. And what Dr. Krabs said this week, and we call him Larry because he makes you call him Larry. So if you hear me refer to him as Larry, I'm not trying to be too familiar. It's just that that's kind of forced on us. Now, if I start calling him Lair, then you go, Chuck, you really don't know him well enough to call him Lair. But Lair said this this past week. He said, uh, when, second, when, when, when second things become our focus... Our prayer life becomes a negotiation and ceases to be a relationship with God. So you know, and I know in my own life, that Christianity has become the means to an end instead of the end itself. Uh, when I start getting mad at God for not moving on my timetable to bring about what I want to make me feel fulfilled, when I start feeling frustrated with him because that which I have said I have to have in order to be happy, and you fill in the blank. For me, it was attention. It might be a marriage for you. It might be, I need a marriage. It might be, uh, I need a child. That's a terrible feeling, but I'm not able to have children. That's, you know, but if at some point you go, I, I can't know joy until that happens for me, it's, there's, it's, there's heartbreak in that. But we also have to say there's something really, um, something really needs to get reordered in our heart. Uh, if I don't have career success, if I don't have financial security, if I don't know these things, then I can't know joy. That's when we can go, okay, Jesus, this crack in me, this broken place in me, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to look inside to see what my soul's deepest longing is. And I think that's why the, the moment often of your greatest disenchantment with your life is the moment of the greatest opportunity. I mean, for, for me, as, as many of you know, um, I was the band guy for, for many years. I did the band thing, and the goal was, was to make it um, with music. And that meant the dead end that inevitably that Peter Pan-inducing syndrome will, where, bro, you were made for something more than the applaud of a few people at a bar. I mean, honestly here. Um, and so the, f the fact that I'm doing this now is really a testament of God's grace. Um, and a huge verse for me from the book of John in this season before I came out here was 
It's one of those you've read it a hundred times and then it just shoots off like a firework the one time you read it. It says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, then it will bear much fruit. And that's, for me, that felt like kind of my music, right? That, that had died, that idea of trying to make it the pursuit of self-glory. And it wasn't even on my radar anymore, really doing anything with music. Um, and then the Lord was like, okay, well, now, now you can actually be useful in the church because you have no um, delusion that, that your joy is found in you being glorified. Mm-hmm. You've learned the secret that more joy is to be found in bringing glory to the one who's due glory and praise. And so even here, it is such a different context and environment and even posture. I, I don't do it from a position of strength. Well, and I'll tell you this, and not because you asked me to or but because, uh, or because I like you a lot, be- both of which are true. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Thank God. But uh, that's one of the things I love about your worship leading is, is, and I've heard others tell me this, is that when I go to church at Prism, I don't feel like I'm worshiping the worship leader, which is like sort of kind of the goal but if you've been not to worship to, the worship leader, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know the goal is that we would look past the worship leader to the one we're supposed to be worshiping, and so our hope would be that that would be the experience here at our church. So thank you for being that way. I, I know this week I wrote down something that is meaningful to me, and I'm hoping that in, you know, in our all of our quest to know God and to enjoy him and to bring him glory, which is our chief end, according to the Westminster Catechism, uh, that we are here to bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. Uh, that in our pursuit of that, we would see things as barometers. And this, I was processing, and this week, if I came back physically rested, I came back emotionally exhausted. A friend of mine in the first service after the service said, you're pretty heavy-hearted today, aren't you? And I went, I didn't know it was that obvious. <laughs> you know, but it really is because uh, while I'm not pooped physically, the whole week is this, you know, this looking into the cavern of my soul and trying to you know, really unearth, you know, Lord, where are you working? And one of the thoughts that he brought to mind for me this week was that my anxiety is a barometer of my idolatry. And, and, and it's because the things in my life, the things I w- get com- worried about tend to, if I walk them out to their logical conclusion, reveal to me, okay, what I want more than anything is this and not God. And, and, and so what my hope would be for our church, if you would, is that we would just be tuned to what's really going on in our hearts, that 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 we would get beyond the surface um, of behavioral, behavioral compliance. Like we wouldn't be a church about rules. Thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not touch this. It, it's about so much more than that. It's about, okay, um, I'm, not gonna get cons- I'm not gonna consume something to the point where it destroys me, not just because that's the command of God, but because when I do that, as Brooks talked about last week in Jonah 2.8, you know, when you cling to a worthless idol, you basically forfeit the grace that could be yours. And so for a lot of us, it, it, it's, uh, we're trying to say, yes, we are called to comply with the law of God and to love Jesus, but it isn't so that we can just do what's right. It's, it's so that we can live for him and receive from him what he really wants for us. And the gospel frees us 
to look at how broken we are. We are secure in Christ. We want very much for you to know that God loves you. He's forgiven you of your sins. He's covered you and clothed you in Christ's righteousness. If you do not know that you are, quote unquote, saved, if you don't know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven, we want that to be a reality for you. That is a reality that happens when somebody becomes a Christian. But the gospel is more than that. It's, it's us being able to peer down into the abyss of our brokenness and say, okay, Lord, where are you trying to bring about my growth in grace, my ability to reflect the character of Christ, the will of God is Your my sanctification. sanctification. Right. And so the goal of this is not just that we would be saved and then obey a bunch of rules, but that our hearts would be transformed and there would take place in us a, a, a growing birth of longings for God that won't be completely consolable till we get to heaven, but we would begin to drink from that as opposed to returning to the sewer water that I was drinking trying to fill my soul before. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things Dr. Crabb says a lot is we, in this life we get sips, not gulps. <laughs> Uh, but the Bible also says that better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. So, you know, the little bit, for whatever reason, God's decided to, to, to distribute his grace daily, enough for the day, that bit is better than a thousand gallons of the garbage I was pouring into my soul before. Because all that did was make me more thirsty, and it really led me away from God and uh, I think one of the challenges, one of the things that we talk, he, I talked with him about was this, as a pastor, I want to be faithful, and I know we share this. We, we want to tell you exactly what the Bible does say you can expect in this life and no more. Because I think the problem, the problem, one of the problems in a Western culture is that it's very easy for people to have experienced something and then give kind of the blueprint of how they got to that experience and then print a book and then show you this is how you can get to my experience and then you realize that that experience isn't necessarily mapped out in scripture that the reason God works mysteriously is so that we don't think he's a formula that if we apply steps A, B, C and D we can get to the managed perfect life that we always dreamed of this is about relationships so, you know, we don't want our prayer life to become this thing where it's, you know, God, I have a notion that my dream is that I would be this and that this would work out, so make it happen, and I'll hang on until you do. The, the purpose of the difficulty is to awaken us to the deeper longing, which is for God himself. And so for our church, um, we, we really want to talk in terms of uh, the consolable longings, what we can expect in this life. Another thing Dr. Crabb said this past week was, in this lifetime, we know we're promised this. The power, the passion, and the privilege of loving others like Jesus does. The rest of the stuff, how much he provides, that's all secondary. And the means to knowing joy in his presence uh, may be the loss of some personal security. It may be the end of a particular relationship. It may be the persecution 
of being alienated from culture because you decided you believed in a resurrected Jesus who actually had something to say about how we are supposed to live. So the, it's the sacrifice of those things that may bring the life that our souls are really craving for. But if you're so consumed with getting what you need because you just don't even really know why, you feel like I have to have that or I cannot live, you're never going to open yourself up to what God does have. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I'm so thankful about our congregation is we're growing in, in relationship. And it's in that place where we can actually exhibit the, the lost Christian virtue of exhortation. Right? That is a lost Christian virtue of, I see that your soul is, is um, leaking some things that, that, that aren't pretty. What's, what's going on there? Um, Hebrews says, see to it that your brother's heart isn't being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do, do we do that? Um, I was saying in the last service, so I had to go do the smog check. And, of course, I have all the lights on my dashboard are, are blinking, and I just, of course, ignore them. Um, well, the, the state of California wouldn't let me ignore them any longer. He's like, I can't pass you until that light goes out. And I'm like, we all know that doesn't mean anything, man. It just, just sign the paper <laughs> or whatever. And, and it turns out it does. It, it means, means that, that there's a problem with my engine, and it's releasing noxious gas. And they won't allow me to do that. Well, that's kind of what happens in Christian community is the idiot lights of your soul are on that you can't see or you right. ignore and you have people who you know love you say, man, what's, what's going on here? Let's, let's, right. let's sit with that. Let's talk with that. What's, what's below that? And so I, I love this texture that you're putting out there. Well, and it's funny that he mentions the car imagery because I, I used this analogy for years, even before what I call the great car crash of 2008, which was just my life coming to this <laughs> screeching halt. That's all. I've used, uh, I, I use this analogy, and it's sad because I think about how little of it I actually lived 15, 20 years ago, but... You know, I, I think I liken attending, attending to our souls and what's hurting there to driving our cars. You, you can't hear what's wrong with your heart um, while you're racing down the highway of life. You have to be parked in the driveway a little bit. That's where you hear the pings and the clanks, and that's where you go, okay, that doesn't sound normal, and you go in and you ask your spouse, is it supposed to make that noise? Or, <laughs> or you actually pay attention to the dashboard lights that are blinking, and you see all these things. And if you're like me, what you would have done and would do would be to live life so fast. You're just driving as fast as you can, and you got the volume on the stereo up as loud as you, on 11 because 10 wasn't loud enough, you know? And you're just, you just can't stand the idea of quiet because in quiet, you have to actually address there's something wrong. And so when people would point out, you know, you are leaking antifreeze all over the ground, <laughs> yeah. you, you would just ignore them because I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to keep moving. I've learned to cope, and the way I cope in life is keep it moving. Just keep the car going. And then... One day, because you've ignored all of the outreach that God has done to you through others and through his spirit, you just end up, well, like I did eight years ago, uh, out of gas, out of commission on the side of the road, and forced to ask for help, and forced to look up and finally open the hood and go, yeah, there's some things in there that have not been good. So since, since that season eight years ago... Um, what has quiet looked like for you? How are you, how are you growing in that? Well, it, it's interesting because uh, I hadn't ever journaled before then. Now, I'd heard you were supposed to if you really love Jesus a lot. 
Um, and I read Too Busy Not to Pray by Bill Hybels and felt guilty enough to try for a month or two. <laughs> but the truth be told is until I started listening in quietness to God, I really didn't have anything to journal about. And, and so initially, you know, I would, uh, I would um, I, for me, journaling has been prayer more than it's been like a diary. Uh, I tend to express my thoughts more clearly when I write them down. And so I will, several years ago, finally started getting up in the morning. And I know that sounds really spiritual, and I, I'm almost reluctant to tell anybody that I do this because it sounds like, wow, just like Jesus, he got up early in the morning to fellowship with his father. Um, it, it, I really, it wasn't an act of my will. It was an act of desperation born out of my soul, finally coming to the conclusion that I was that I was desperate for someone to tell me they loved me and I had no chance of finding that in this world in any real way and God wasn't happy that I had been wasting a lot of my, the years of my life chasing um, a mirage. I was thirsty and finally said okay. He really trapped me into a world where I was forced to look to him and once I started looking to him I was like, hey, this is actually starting to actually satiate my thirst for God. Maybe I should start doing this. And you'd think a guy had been in ministry for 15 years and picked up on something by now, but it really is really, really easy in Western culture and in American culture and in, in the evangelical culture to, to look to succeeding in ministry as a, a means of feeding your soul, especially if you've got issues like I got. So I spend time in the morning reading. I read scripture. I read books. Uh, I spend time praying, and sometimes I've had to do that. I've had to adapt what quiet looks like for me, and it had made me, perhaps made me look antisocial when I didn't mean to, but for me, I'm a social person, so finding solitude is challenging, and if you're one of those people that, you know, you get up and you try to kneel next to your couch or your bed to pray early in the morning, and you end up falling asleep and drool, you know, because like, oh, Jesus, I pray, you know, and you're half awake as you pray, I had to start getting up and going to a place um, to have coffee and breakfast someplace. And I would read and I'd put my earbuds in and turn on music so that I could find quiet. And it sounds crazy, but it was more like kind of spa music or something that would just facilitate sort of a quiet. And that may sound like, that's quiet for you? I'm like, for me, that's quiet, you know? And, and it, it was necessary, and that journaling actually helps in that regard because I can pray without having to kneel down next to my booth in Subway, which sort of creeps people out if you do that. So um, uh, having a journal where you can read and pray, um, those are the ways that I've sort of found places of escape. Um, they don't always have to look like a monk in a monastery. Y you, you find the place in your world where you can start listening as you read, as you pray. Yeah, I remember it's something I was, that came to the surface for me was I, I was using sermons and religious teaching to keep me from coming to quiet. And I just said, well, this is Christian stuff, so cer certainly this is fine. But it was constant, especially living alone, there has to be something on. And I finally came to the place where I'm like, I, I think I have enough information right now. Right. Um, I, I need to sit with that, and it's not something I, I still do all that well. Um, that's why I'm even encouraged in your exhortation to that end, because it's something I need. Well, and the point of all this in terms of our turning point with Jonah is that in, you see in Jonah 2.10 uh, that Jonah 
was vomited out on the beach. And I, and I realized that you'd wonder why theologians could have spent so much time on Jonah 2.10. Because, as I mentioned before, it is a, a turning point in the text, but what the essence of most of the commentary on Jonah 2.10 is is the, the beautiful truth that that which could have been the death of him was actually what propelled him into newness of life. And for some of us, it, maybe it was something extraordinarily painful. And what it is, is it is the means that God is giving to help us to move ahead spiritually where he wants us to be. For me, it was uh, almost the nervous breakdown where I just kind of came to the end of myself and realized I've been doing this all for me and this isn't going to work and it's not working. Jesus, show me what it means to know you. But that forced quietness is what Jonah obviously had packed tight into the inner being of this big fish. And now he gets to start over. And it's important to note, as I really point out a couple of quick thoughts from Jonah's experience and why this turning point, what changes those wrought in Jonah. It's important to point out that as, you know, we'll take Palm Sunday and then Easter, and then we're going to start on the second half of Jonah, but that Jonah's not done. In other words, there's going to be a couple of hiccups along the way from this point, but what Jonah figures out is that he comes face to face with God in these moments, and you'll actually see him not just run from God, but he'll actually start addressing God. Um, He said, okay, I realize that running from you is impossible, but I'm not happy about this, and so I'm going to tell you what I think. And then God addresses him in that. So there is a learning and a growing that happens once a person becomes a Christian, once a person comes to terms with what's been driving their life that wasn't God. But there are three real substantial changes in Jonah's heart that we see from the prayer that we have spent the last few weeks studying, but also read again today during worship. And that is that Jonah's pain, it produced compassion in him. And this is a commonality. The New Testament says as much, says that if we uh, have been experiencing sufferings, in many ways it's so that we can comfort others in the sufferings they have. Uh, Verse 6 of Jonah 2 says, Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. So Jonah's compassion was now for these Ninevite people who... He didn't love very much. We'll hear more about his hatred for them in the chapters ahead. But what we know is that what motivated Jonah to say, forget these people, was he didn't really think of himself as as bad as they were. And in this moment of, you know, God having his whole world collapse in on him, he realizes that he isn't superior to them. I I know that my experience breaking down has given me a new level of compassion for people that are suffering. And, and so that's something that results. Jonah's pain also produced, is what Brooks and I already talked about, is contemplation. And it isn't a contemplation that makes you look good to others. Um, it's a contemplation that results from being forced to look inward at your own soul and your own soul's need. He says in verse 7 of Jonah chapter 2, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. So there's something about that moment of you feel like my life is coming unhinged. Um, 
that forces us to begin an inner life, an inner life with God in ways that, um, that we wouldn't have otherwise. And so Jesus, when you're having a difficult season, when there's a, uh, an obstacle that can't get overcome, a sin that it continues to beset us, when there are these things in our life, they're designed to drive us to our deepest longing and Jonah's pain produced this kind of contemplation. And then as Brooks talked about last week, Jonah's pain produced a commitment. Um, his, his, his commitment in verse 9 uh, to have a voice of thanksgiving and sacrifice and vowing to God, all of this is a product of grace that was extended to Jonah. So, you know, one of the things that the step that gets missed and often in church and Christian experience for many is that it becomes a set of rules. You know, I've just got to stop doing this so that I can feel better, and if I stop doing this behavior, I'll feel better. I'll feel better about who I am in God, and I'll feel better about how I can manage my life. Instead of saying what we've been talking about, which is that my obedience, my commitment to follow Christ is a commitment to turn, which is what the Bible calls repentance, turn to his way as the means of filling my soul. Problem is for most of us, we don't necessarily know, we're not very good at knowing what it is that's driving us. It, it takes community. It takes an, a, a, a comfort that comes from being assured of our forgiveness, of our love, that we would ask somebody, what do you see in me? What behavioral patterns do you see in me that would, that would indicate to you that I... I have been relying upon a strategy I've created to manage life, to fill my soul instead of a very relationship with God where I could trust him. And, and that looks different from everybody, but we are horrible at self-analysis. That's why God has called us into safe community. Find a friend, a spouse, somebody that you know has got no agenda and ask them the, the challenging questions. Would you be willing to help me? Find the spiritual director. Are you, can you, do you have the courage by grace to say, I need somebody to give me guidance. You may feel like I've arrived spiritually and that's problematic. All of us need somebody to guide our hearts. All of us need what Jonah needed, which was the Lord's grace to push him, to propel him forward into the next phase of his walk. Well, thank you for sharing, and I even just to uh, go back at you. I'm I'm, I'm so thankful for um, to have a pastor who has created a, a vulnerable texture, um, even in my life. And I I've grown so much even in the past three years of understanding the safety of being able to look at my own brokenness. And so thank you for exhibiting that. Um, let me pray for us as we as we transition. <clears throat> well, Father, we we are thankful um, for the gospel, which creates a safe space to be known. A safe space to have your light shine in us without fear because your perfect love casts out fear. Father, we as a community, we are posturing ourselves. We, we want your spirit to continue working deeply in us to bring healing to the places that are broken to bring life to the places that, that are, are dead. 
We want to be a place where we can recover that sweet virtue of exhortation, where it doesn't feel like somebody's encroaching on our space, but they're, they're loving me. Oh. And those, Lord, who they don't have anybody else in their life who really has a pulse on their pain with them, that you would bring relationships. Um, you would bring what, whatever you want to call it, mentorships. That even if people would be willing to reach out to their pastors and say, be with me in this, help me. That we would be a humble people. I know I need that. I know we all need that. We thank you that, that you have been creating a community that, that longs to be known. And we are eager to see how that bears fruit in this next season. Um, thank you for the work that you have done in, in Pastor Chuck and you are continuing to do. And I, I pray that you do continue to do that as, as he leads us and guides us. Lord, we we love you so much and we're so aware that we can only love you because you have first loved us so well in Christ.